0: thought leadership from PWC.
1: Welcome to PWC's accounting podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Today, we're coming to you with the start of a special surprise ESG miniseries that we'll be releasing on Wednesdays for the next few weeks. In this short series of episodes, we're going to take a stroll through the neighborhood of different industries to gain an understanding of the challenges and opportunities that companies face in each business sector as they work through implementing and reporting on ESG. Well, each episode will focus on a specific industry, think, retail, real estate, technology, and more. Our listeners on this podcast, of course, span all industries. So don't worry. There's definitely something in here for all of us to learn. As you'll see, many of these themes are universal. As the last few years have shown us, whether we're talking about supply chains, geopolitics, or greenhouse gas emissions, the reality of today's business climate is that we're perhaps more interconnected than we realized. Take a net zero strategy as just one example. As companies work through their scope three emissions inventory, it's important to understand all aspects of their value chain, including the challenges facing their suppliers and customers, who come from a multitude of industries. So it's important that finance leaders have a sense for all of these moving parts and all of these interconnections. And that's what we're going to give you with this mini series. A lot of these conversations will focus on the SEC's recent climate disclosure proposal, but they definitely go beyond that. So be sure to join us for each one to get a sense for the total ESG landscape. And one more surprise, we're doing something we haven't done before on this podcast. We actually have a special guest host. Frequent listeners will remember Casey Herman, who's been on the podcast many times, as well as on our webcast. Casey is the leader of PwC's US ESG practice. So is at the forefront of leading our teams who are helping clients work through and capitalize on their biggest ESG challenges and opportunities. And I have to say from a personal perspective, I've worked with Casey for years and years and years, and I know you're in great hands.
2: Putting in some sort of automation, because if you're really driving towards certain targets, hopefully they're based and linked to operational achievements or goals anyhow. But if you wait till after your end, you see how close you are and you kind of cross your fingers, what's the sense of having a target if you only get to know how much, how well you're doing against the target and you only get to make decisions once every 12 months?
3: really just something to think about. Even though you think you get that baseline nailed when you set the target, often when we're working with clients around um, their roadmaps to achieve targets, the, the often one of the things we're finding is, is some opportunities for improvement with their data collection and measurement even in that initial baseline.
1: Those are our guests, John DeRose and Julie Bogus, partners in PwC's ESG practice focused on consumer markets which is PwC lingo for companies that are end-consumer-facing. Think retail, hospitality, and more. John and Julie have a wealth of experience they'll bring to this episode. I hope you find their conversation with Casey interesting and insightful. So with that, let's get started.
0: John and Julie, I'm really excited to have this conversation with the two of you today, in, in part because... Um, I do have some some pretty good inside knowledge on the clients that you all are working with and the perspectives you're getting from from those interactions. So I'm I'm really excited to hear uh your observations and some of your insights today. Um to start with, uh you know, I, I think our audience is all pretty aware of the Securities and Exchange Commission's proposed rules on climate change disclosures. But just to ground everyone on 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 that topic. Uh, John, could you give us just a, a quick high-level overview of what the SEC has proposed?
2: Sure. Yeah. And, and obviously, we have a, a, a good level of detail in all separate podcast uh, series on the SEC rule. But at a high level, um, there's disclosures related to climate risks and the impact of climate risks on the organization. And if you think about the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, or TCFD, um, it's in alignment with, with that guidance, so many companies are already beginning to go down that road to understand their climate risks, and uh, many more companies are actually starting to figure out what they need to do to understand those risks and and begin to capture data related to those. And then when we get to the, the data or the impact of those risks and the disclosures, um, there is a requirement currently in uh, the proposed guidance to disclose the impact of climate risks um, on financial statement line items with a 1% materiality threshold, which many companies have uh, begun to wrestle with or try to understand because there's a lot of nuance and detail when you get to that level of disclosure and understanding. Um, from a uh, disclosure perspective, as far as emissions go, there's a requirement to disclose scope one and scope two greenhouse gas emissions. There's also a requirement to disclose Scope 3 greenhouse gas emissions if they're deemed material or if a client or a company has set goals uh, which include Scope 3 greenhouse gas emissions which many companies have or uh, in uh, consumer markets, industrial products um, Scope 3 is a large portion or will be a large portion once calculated um, of the overall greenhouse gas emissions footprint. Um, There's also requirements for attestation or assurance over scope one and scope two greenhouse gas emissions. And those uh, follow along depending upon when the rule will eventually be finalized. Those follow along um, uh, from a limited level assurance currently, and then moving up to a reasonable level of assurance.
0: Thanks, John. And I'll I'll just um, add some quick observations about the comment letter process. So uh, comments from... uh, interested parties were due at the end of June. Uh, and I heard from an SEC staff person on Monday at a presentation I was at that this com- th- this proposed rule has gotten more comment letters than any other uh, rulemaking that the SEC has uh, pursued in its history. Um, just to give some quick numbers, there were 14,000 comment letters submitted. That's a, a Historically high amount. Now, of those 14,000, 10,000 of them were form letters. So uh, there were at least 28 different standard letters that were sent in multiple, multiple times. And that represented 10,000, about 10,000 of the 14,000. Another 3,000 of the comment letters were from individuals. Many of those were pretty brief, saying they supported the initiative or they didn't support the initiative. But but didn't have a ton of comments in terms of the specific contents of, of the rulemaking. And then there were about a thousand that were submitted by, uh, uh, where there were about a thousand individually discrete letters that had supporting comments, observations on how to make it more operationally effective. Uh, uh, many of those voiced support for the rulemaking. Many of them also did not voice support for the rulemaking, a great diversity in perspectives. And I think the SEC staff is busily digesting those letters as they work towards a final rulemaking. Uh, we, we hear um, that a final rule may be issued as early as October of 2022. Uh, based on some of the agendas that we see from the SEC staff, it seems to be the path that they're that they're going down. So more to come soon. And uh, John, you talked about the th- the kind of the three broad levels of disclosure that that this is requiring, and we'll dig into those a little bit more specifically um, over the course of the rest of this podcast and specifically how some of those disclosures might be challenging or might be great opportunities for consumer-facing companies. But before we get into the details of those disclosures, Julie, could you give us some idea about why this is such an important topic to those companies that are um, that, that typically serve end user consumers?
3: Absolutely. Well, if you're joining this podcast, your your own market research probably also tells you that increasingly consumers are interested in understanding the environmental performance, environmental and social per- performance of the the companies that they purchase goods and services from. A couple specific data points from from our research and surveys. We do a, a consumer insight survey, and, and last year. We learned that 85% of consumers reported that they are more likely to buy from a company that stands up for environmental or other ESG issues. And the flip side was true, too. Um, 76% of consumers reported that they would discontinue those relationships they have with, with companies that treat the environment, treat their employees or their communities poorly. That was recently backed up in a consumer insight survey that was focused on trust. So, so broader than ESG, but trust in general, and the responses were were clear, clear, they were the same. So 91% of consumers said they would buy from a company that had gained their trust. And importantly, 14% of those said that they would buy significantly more from those companies. But the flip side stayed true. 71% of customers said that they would buy less if a company actually lost their trust, and the important thing to notice here is that 73% said of those of us that are in consumers said we would spend significantly less with, with companies that had, had lost our trust. So thinking about what you're putting out there while we're talking about the SEC and investor led initiatives, this, this data is, is multi-purpose and um, it, it's important for it to be complete and accurate as we'll, we'll talk about today.
0: Yeah, Julie, it highlights such an important issue. This is a business issue, not a compliance and a reporting issue. There certainly are compliance and reporting challenges to this. But but if you're a consumer-facing company, your customers are making decisions in part on their perception of, of your position um, based on some of this data. So, uh, you know, this isn't just for the external reporting folks and the general counsel. This is a business issue that – that is of critical importance. Because this data is important, I guess I'll ask this to both of you, John and Julie, Um, uh, companies that are consumer-facing have been voluntarily reporting much of this data for many years. Give us some perspectives on on some of those voluntary reporting initiatives and and where uh, these consumer-facing sectors stand compared to the broader economy.
2: Sure, I, I can start, Julie, and feel free to weigh in. Um, you know, when, when we look at certain studies that are out there, about 92% of the S&P 500 issue or provide ESG information out in the public domain. Um, when we look at consumer markets, industrial products type companies, you know, averages between 70 and 80%. So all of that reporting has been um, uh, voluntary reporting up to this time. There are different initiatives here and there in the US, there are things happening overseas. Um, but if we think about it, it's it's been driven over the past several decades based upon transparency and the need from various stakeholders for additional information. And what's happened, and you, you can put any timeline you want on it, but what's happened more recently uh, is investors and asset managers are starting to use this information to understand the well-being of an organization to make better decisions about investing or directing the flow of capital. And, Now we're also seeing, as Julie mentioned, the business, the B2C aspect. Consumers are looking for this. There's also a B2B perspective. There's a B2B perspective to to monitor your value chain and work with partners who are like-minded and are also treating the environment and their people in the same way that uh, the company wants to treat um, their people and the planet. But there's also some requirements being put in place from B2B perspective in order to capture that Scope 3 greenhouse gas emissions, as I mentioned, and in order to help drive broader initiatives and make change in the market. So, you know, this is all being done without regulation. And then, as we mentioned, you layer on what's happening with the SEC. So, it's really elevated the need to capture good data, the need to have it timely, and, and the need to use it for internal decision-making purposes.
3: I'll just add one One of the interesting things that that I think has come out of all of this discussion around the SEC has been bringing together different parts of the organization. So over the past two decades, and in some cases, was companies have been putting out their GRI or Global Reporting Initiative reports to a multi-stakeholder audience or their SASB, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, uh, re- reporting intended for investors, but often used for many audiences, there's been a small group of people that may be the ones pushing that through. And it may not have had necessarily had involvement from some of the groups that have already been mentioned on this podcast today. Increasingly, finance, general counsel's office, IT, uh, other parts of the business are joining in and thinking about Let's truly come together and think about that completeness and accuracy that underlies that that data because uh, there's, even for companies that have been reporting, when you start thinking about putting things into your 10K, there's a, another level of, of effort that you most likely want to put in and in some cases need to put in to get to investor grade and differentiate from the reporting you've done before. And hopefully, uh, it might not always feel like it, but you've got other parts of the organization that have resources and tools that can help. Um, thinking about technology that can serve you for both your reporting to the SEC, but also some of these other voluntary reports that, that Casey asked about.
0: So that's a great foundation for the discussion. John, I think you said close to 90% of of um, many of these companies have been voluntarily reporting for many years, if not decades. Um, and, and clearly, um, those voluntary reports were carefully prepared and, and comprehensive. But Julie, as you said, shifting from voluntary reporting on a website or, or published under, under different, uh, uh, you know, different standards is very different than an SEC filing. And uh, what we see our clients facing is, okay, how do I, how do I get even better at the quality of my reporting? How do I get even better at putting internal controls into this data? How do I um, expedite the reporting process to meet SEC filing deadlines um, to be able to, to, to transparently and, com- and and in a comparative way report this data more appropriately? So with that as a backdrop, what are you all hearing as the biggest challenges that are, that the companies you work with are facing as they make that pivot from voluntary reporting to SEC compliant reporting? I could start again, Julie.
2: Sure, right with that. Um, one of the biggest things that shocks me, is, and I see this in a lot of conversations I have, and and in in particular with some clients I'm working with, is you know the reports may have been done for years, as Julie mentioned, but When certain people within the organization, certain functions start to get involved, you know, finance, internal audit, et cetera, there's this aha moment where it's like, wow, you have been doing a lot of work. There's a lot behind this. It's not, you know, oh, you just gather some information and then you just apply math to it and you get your greenhouse gas emissions, right? There's this whole we need to have a good facility listing complete. We need to actually get utility invoices for every facility for every month or have a consistent way of estimating or filling the gaps in data. Then we have to apply all of the criteria under the greenhouse gas protocol. And then we have to determine where we make assumptions and estimates. We have to document those assumptions and estimates. We have to push those down from a change management and training perspective. So it's this taking subject matter and applying the same concepts as financial subject matter. And it's a big aha moment for those who are responsible for financial reporting and disclosures and those responsible for filing and furnishing information to the SEC. You know, there's a lot of rigor and time that goes into ESG reporting from the sustainability team. And historically, you know, companies have reported months and months and months after year end. And some companies gotten really good and pulled that forward. But there's a lot of people working really hard to get those reports out. And I'm not sure, judging from some of the reactions of other parts of the organizations, I think there's a bit of a surprise that it really takes that much level of effort and time to do. And 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 that's, that's kind of a, a big thing that's risen to the top. I can't tell you how many controllers and CFOs and directors of internal audit who in some time during a meeting scratch their head and say, wow, so there's a lot of work to be done here.
3: And I'll just add, we, we've talked a lot about companies who maybe have been at the journey of voluntarily reporting on ESG performance for some time. I'm always conscious there are thousands of companies out there that haven't been, and some of you may be listening right now. So, um, and perhaps that's an opportunity, right? You, you can you don't have any bad habits you have to uncover, and you can you can focus on what matters. But regardless. Of whether you're a company that's just starting out or one that's been voluntarily reporting, I'll, I'll just name a couple areas of specifics from, from the proposal that I uh, hear a lot about, including on my last call today. Um, but one of those being scope three emissions. So thinking about value chain greenhouse gas emissions, so your emissions outside of your own operations Um, We'll talk a little bit more about it later, but in in our industries, uh, predominantly come from purchased goods and services, which may mean thousands, if not tens of thousands of suppliers. Uh, So difficult to think about how to get your arms around there. Um, And then also the the financial statement footnote disclosure, where uh, companies are expected to apply a 1% materiality threshold to financial statement line items that might be subject to to, um, climate events or transition activities and make certain disclosures there. That's something that hasn't typically been included in in voluntary reporting, so it's, it's new for everyone. And the data to do that analysis isn't something that's necessarily readily available. You're not necessarily tagging expenditures or tagging expenditures that you might be making um, as a result of commitments you've made to reduce your greenhouse gas emissions. They're just simply capitalized or expensed, and, and you're going to have to figure out how to pull that out.
0: Julie, I think that's going to be particularly complicated. Um, you know, as you know, I come from a utility company background, and they're used to tracking their storm costs when there's a major storm event, and they're used to tracking things by work order. But most companies don't necessarily do that. And carving that data out is going to be really complicated. I, I'd also say that as, as we have started to review the comment letters, those 1,000 individual comment letters, the number one um, suggestion to the SEC on how to improve this rule is to, is to have a different approach than the 1% threshold Within the footnote disclosure, um, our own comment letter, PwC, suggested, you know, falling back to an overall financial statement materiality threshold, but also not making these disclosures financial line item specific, but but event driven. So, if you're investing in in sustainability um, or or resiliency, then that investment program would be something you'd disclose. If you are impacted by a major climate event, a big storm or a fire or whatever that event is, then the cost of that event be disclosed, but but not on a line-by-line item basis in the financial statements. That's just an overwhelming um, amount of disclosure, I think. Um, and And, you know, the footnote, there's no running start. Uh, that companies have because of voluntary disclosures. So that's really starting fresh and I think is going to take a lot of work and a lot of effort. And of course, it's subject to um, internal controls over financial reporting because it's in the footnote and subject to external audits. So that that's a whole higher level of uh, control and process uh, design that needs to be considered. John, you mentioned that uh, there's a requirement to disclose Scope 1 and 2 emissions uh, within, within the 10K, not within the footnotes, but within the 10K. And uh, the proposal is for, for that data to be subject to a third-party assurance process. Uh, it, it, may, it may be your external auditor that you choose to have that done. It doesn't have to be your external auditor uh, as long as it's a certified and qualified and independent party. Uh, but but that's a that's that's a higher level of diligence than is voluntarily being provided many times right now.
1: Hi, it's Heather. Let me jump in here to clarify for our listeners: the third-party attestation requirement in the proposal applies only to accelerated and large accelerated filers.
0: For the consumer-facing industries, what are the what are some of the most um, Uh, challenging aspects of gathering and reporting that data.
2: Yeah. And and there's, you know, there's a lot and they crop up in different places, but, you know, and and I kind of touched on it earlier Um, when we think about data and data flow and you always think back to the source, you know, many companies have a problem or have issues or take a lot of time just to reconcile their facility listing. Right. I mean, they have something reported in, in the K they have something on the website. You go to real estate and you get a list and now you've got three different versions and consumption of diesel, natural gas, electricity, et cetera. All of your greenhouse gas emissions uh, sources depends upon a good idea of your physical locations and your fleets and your physical assets So really getting that list reconciled and nailed down is important. And then actually saying, wow, we need that 12 months of data for all these sources. And if we lease a building, do we have operational control, financial control? Are we able to get consumption? Do we have to estimate consumption? So there's a lot of challenges in getting that raw data. And that raw data is the basis for calculating. That that raw consumption data is the basis for calculating greenhouse gas emissions. So that's a big challenge is the data gathering. Number two, I would say is the interpretation and application of the criteria consistently. So many companies have broad footprints, different business units across the U.S., global, you name it. And actually interpreting, say, the greenhouse gas protocol, consider that your accounting criteria, interpreting that and making sure that it's applied for through all of your business units so that when you get the data, they have good source data, and they're giving you the information to to calculate the greenhouse gas emissions, you're calculating apples to apples across your entire boundary. You're not doing it slightly different here or there. Um, And then the actual documentation of that entire process and the change management that I mentioned. Um, And finally will be the timeline you know, like I said, it could take months and months after year end for companies to get their ESG information out. And now we're going to slam it into the uh, 10K and really shave off a lot of time. Um, so those would be the, the, the four big issues in getting the data together. Julie, I don't know if you've seen anything else or have anything to add.
3: I'll just add the the human element. Uh, you know, Once you figure all these things out, it, it's not enough to just figure it out once, but how do you upskill the people around the world at all these facilities, for example, that may have to have involvement here? And and keep upskilling because the same people may not be available in, in the future. And uh, and most of us need things repeated more than once. It's not as simple as getting on a webcast one time saying, here's the new way you do things. Uh, it's important to think about an ongoing change program to, to make sure people understand their responsibilities in this process.
0: Yeah, and I, I think an underappreciated complexity among many is the difficulties of scope two emissions. And, you know, especially for retail oriented uh, businesses that have operations in many, many thousands of locations, you know, getting not only the energy usage data, but the carbon content of that energy usage and figuring out over what period of time you want to measure it. Is it an annual average? A monthly average, an hourly average, and reporting in different jurisdictions, different, you know, even different uh, places within the U.S., different different grid spots within the U.S. is going to be very different. So I can see that evolving and and taking a lot of technology, frankly, to get your arms around it. If you have a very uh, decentralized and distributed business model, so if that's hard. Um, Julie, tell us how hard Scope three uh, disclosures are going to be.
3: Similarly, along those lines, like you said, you know, as retail and hospitality companies, they have a lot of their own locations. Your suppliers have you have even more suppliers. So, uh, when we we think about uh, consumer products, uh, retail, hospitality, airlines, uh, a, a large source of your emissions do come from the goods and service you purchase in order to serve your customers or make your product um, or, or sell the collection of products you do. And what you might be immediately thinking about is a consumer products company might have thousands of SKUs and they do retailers sell thousands of things. Um, even, even in cases where you're buying your goods and services to serve your customers in a hospitality or airline there are still thousands of suppliers and thousands of things that you're buying out there. Um, that's one of the big challenges for, for consumer markets companies. It's just the sheer number of suppliers that you have to think about calculating your calculating and med- modeling your purchase goods and services, which is typically among the largest sources of scope three or value chain emissions. Uh, another one, of course, is transportation and distribution. Um, but similarly. What companies need to start tackling is, okay, what, what portion of our supply chain do we survey? Um, and what are, what are the appropriate c- criteria? What makes up a, 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 that population of companies that we should survey? And then getting to a, a process that, that you're comfortable with to also do some modeling of those emissions. There's a number of techniques out there that can help you understand based on your spend. And, and this is allowable by the SEC rule. Um, for example, particularly just to get started, a, a hot hotspot analysis, if you will, of what are the suppliers that make up the majority of your emissions, based on both spend and then the intensity of the whatever activity it is that that they're doing in order to get to you whatever it is you're buying um, from them, whether it's a good or, or service. So that's a starting point to get your arms around it. But then thinking about, um, you know, if this is something you're putting in your financial reporting. What, what else are you comfortable with in, in terms of, of modeling? And I think always this is an area where, I, you know, many people are still kind of throwing up their arms and saying, we're not sure how we're going to do this. Um, and it's definitely an area where, um, as already noted, there, there's been some comments, but I think he, one of the key things I talk to clients about is thinking, keeping in mind what's, what could be important to investors. As we talk about that SEC role, we want to think about what information is useful to investors and having that guide those activities. But a key thing for scope three emission is going to be, it's not a one-time survey. Don't, don't, you're not just pulling up, you know, throwing some questions in and getting some answers back, but that ongoing program enabled by technology to help you mature, uh, you know, where you are in the, the first year in terms of the, the reliability of the data um, is not. Is hopefully not where you'll be five years in. And a big part of that will also be upskilling for your supply base. You can also stratify your supply base based on those that are, for example, SEC filers on their own. So they have their own obligations, but you're going to have a lot of suppliers that are not. You're most likely not their only customer, so you're not the only one asking them for, for reliable greenhouse gas emissions data. But important to start thinking about how it's not just you in improving your own processes, but how do you help your suppliers, often engaging with industry organizations, to improve their own capabilities as well? Well,
0: that sounds like a ton of work, Julie. And just to ground our our listeners, um, scope three disclosures won't be required until a year after the scope one disclosures. So there is an extra year of transition for uh, registrants to pull this data together and to figure out how to do it. And I think very importantly, it's subject to safe harbor provisions because these estimates are pretty broad and pretty subjective. Uh, the SEC has proposed limiting liability um, over the uh, over the accuracy of those disclosures, um, uh, and I think that's an that's an appropriate uh, approach to take given the subjectivity of those estimates and those disclosures. Uh, and then, as, as you mentioned, um, the second most commented upon topic in the thousand letters was the inclusion of scope 3 emissions and again there are some companies that are violently supportive and this is this is really important information so some some commenters felt like this was critical and there are others that said it's too subjective and and it's too far outside of our control as a registrant and and we don't believe that this is an important um, disclosure. So it will be interesting to see how the commissioners and the staff consider all that feedback. John looks like you were about to jump in.
2: Yeah, one thing to add to that last comment is you're right. you know it, it's hard to calculate scope three, right? And you, you know the inclusion of if it's material or if you have a goal set against it, a lot of companies have included scope three in their goals, right? So if you feel confident enough, to say you have a goal and you're going to reduce your emissions overall, including Scope 3, you know, the thinking is, well, hopefully it's right because there's people using this information. There's sophisticated stakeholders who are directing the flow of capital because you've set these goals and you're going to make changes in your value chain. Um, so that's where kind of the trade offs come in. You know, you're doing one thing, but have you really discussed it with the Finance and Disclosure Committee and everybody else from a governance perspective to get um, – to get those goals approved and really understand if they're achievable or if the data behind them is sound.
0: That's a great point. And at least in our comment letter, we suggested that scope three uh, disclosures be narrowed to only those areas that you have published a goal um, or that are, that are considered material, but, but, um, maybe that should be determined on an industry-by-industry industry basis or even a company-by-company company basis. But but if you just say anything that's material, it means you've got to compute it for all 15 categories to figure out what's material and what isn't. And perhaps there's a way to narrow that down um, uh, to ease the burden on registrants as they, as they pursue the implementation of this rule. Um, so, John, I'm going to I'm going to come back to you. Um, you. You opened by talking about some of the disclosure requirements around um, the risks that companies face because of climate risk and whether that's, uh, you know, physical asset risk or whether that's transition risk. Um, uh, but, but how companies compute that, you know, put some guardrails around that, come up with disclosures is going to be uh, a bit of an art form as well as a science um, what are you seeing in terms of some of the challenges that consumer-facing companies are facing as they come up with those disclosures? And how are they managing those risks from, a, from an enterprise risk management perspective?
2: Yeah, so you know, dealing with risks is nothing new for companies, right? And, and uh, companies have had their enterprise risk management programs in place. They know about risks in supply chain, um, et cetera, et cetera. You know, enter ESG, not even just the SEC guidance, but enter ESG and start thinking about what are some other things that are normally, maybe we not we haven't considered, um, but now are top of mind. And those could be social risks, right? Risk of human rights and supply chain and, and, and different things associated with taking of passports and paying of fees and, and all that. Uh, but if we wanted to focus on the climate side and the emissions, you know, that's kind of net new. Um, many clients are aware or have disclosed when they have an event, right? Hey, we you've seen boilerplate. You know, major storms could impact supply chains, could impact the ability to keep our stores open, could impact travel, you name it. Um, and that's kind of glossed over boilerplate information. Companies now are starting to say, well... What's the ripple effect? When you say risk of climate, you can say, you know, obviously major storms, more frequent storms, more powerful storms, uh, forest fires, drought, and you start to get into access to water in the supply chain. You start to get about human migration because of lack of access to water. Um, and then you start to take longer term scenarios and you say livability of certain areas or certain areas may be underwater when you start to think about on a zip code or address level. So there's a lot of science and data now that can support some of these climate related issues. So clients, rather than kind of having these top level, hey, there's a storm, there's an event, are starting to en- engage others and starting to talk about, well, what's the data? What's the science? How do we start to model some of this to get to the understanding of the financial impact or to get to longer term planning. You know, a lot of brands have been around for decades or a century. And when you start to use this modeling, there are impacts in that time frame, right? There may not be impacts in the next year or two that you may predict and be able to quantify. But when you start to think about longevity and better decision-making and better, um, long-term decision-making as far as where you want to do business, how you want to do business, how you want to build out your supply chains, develop physical acts, assets, etc. these things should be considered and will be considered. But I would say from a, you know, Julie mentioned, there's a lot of companies that have been reporting considering ESG for decades, but thousands who are just starting, I think we're in the same space. There's probably fewer who have scratched the surface in understanding their risks and more now who are opening their eyes and saying, we really need to manage this and understand the risk. Because when you understand the risk, there's also um, the presentation of potential opportunities and I think there are some companies who are starting to think about the opportunity side of understanding these risks.
0: Well and with with that whole litany of risks that you just talked about which are which are impressive and, and real, you know these are very real risks as, as we're seeing with many of the events of this summer. Um, you have to, you have to manage those risks and you need to have a governance structure. Um, The SEC rule does require some disclosures around how you manage and govern those risks, both at a management management level as well as a board level. Um, What are some of the activities that you're seeing companies take to to prepare for those disclosures and, more importantly, to manage those risks effectively?
2: Yeah, so across the board… You know, we think well, we think about these this kind of governance in two, two facets. We think about the overall program level governance, and then we think about those metric level governance. And across the board, the program level governance, most, if not all, companies are taking a second look. There are some companies who have been very mature and have oversight at certain levels all the way up to the board and certain board committees. But even those companies are starting to look at, okay, what's the involvement? What's the level of training and understanding? What's the insurance level and coverage for our directors and officers, et cetera? So they're, they're taking a look at that program level. And when we, when you get below the board, a lot of times there was, you know, the sustainability folks and maybe finance was involved, maybe they weren't. So you're now saying, Hey, there's this disclosure committee kind of process and there's the need for, um, the controllership and SEC reporting to be in here somewhere, right? Do they own it? And does the sustainability team just own, you know, all the initiatives and programs and objectives, but, but now finance and the controllership owns the actual reporting? We're seeing some of that discussion take place. But it's very important because this information, as we mentioned throughout the podcast, is being used by sophisticated investors and will be in an SEC filing. So you, you need to, there is a need to change this program level governance. And I would say at almost all companies. And then I'll, I'll quickly touch on the the metric level governance and Julie add you know whatever you're seeing as well. But at the metric level perspective, it gets back to the governance we talked about. If you think about financial statement information, um, in line items, and you start to think about revenue, accounting for receivables, you name it. There's processes in place. There's risk and control matrices. There's an understanding of who does what. There's automation and there's technology. Many companies are still running this stuff on Excel spreadsheets. We've seen the proliferation of um, solutions in the space, and there's a lot of good ones out there, but it just shows that there's been a a vacuum or a void of this level of documentation and technology to meet the metric-level governance requirements for this investor-grade reporting in a timely manner.
0: You just caused me a flashback to the implementation of Sarbanes-Oxley when all we talked about were spreadsheet controls. So... uh, it looks like we're going back down that road again. Um, Julie, let me finish up with let's finish up with a, a more strategic business topic. Um, you mentioned some great statistics at the at the kickoff of the podcast that 80, 90 percent of consumers said that they would make buying decisions influenced by their perception of of how companies are um, investing and focused on ESG topics in general but environmental topics in in particular so because of that a lot of consumer facing companies have set aggressive carbon reduction or net zero goals and um, you know those those create lots of opportunities and challenges as well what uh, what are you seeing across across the the sector, in terms of the types of goals that are being set, how companies are doing on their progress, and and you know where the activity will be over the next several years as companies try and hit some of these these long tailed goals into the into the forties and fifties.
3: So, as you noted, consumer facing companies have been among the leaders in setting climate related commitments for for many years. So uh, these may be science-based targets, uh, often that have been validated by the science-based target initiative, or there could be other types of commitments using terms like carbon neutral or or net zero, um, which has recently been taken on board, or there's actual standards from the science-based targets initiative around net zero. One of the first challenges for uh, consumer-facing companies who have been at this for a while is actually inventorying all of the commitments that have been made. Um, intentionally, uh, you may have made uh, several different types of, of commitments. One, for example, might be with the SBTI, the Science-Based Targets Initiative, uh, because that's what your investors have asked for. In-consumers aren't typically experts on what's required from the SBTI, so you might be using different terminology such as uh, carbon neutral, and you might even extend that to just a, a certain brand as carbon neutral or even an individual product product. Within that brand is carbon neutral because you've probably determined that that might be what resonates more, uh, with, with your consumers who don't associate with the, the full company, but their experiences are, are with those brands or those, those products. So one of the first steps that's sort of unique to consumer facing companies is to get a hold of all those commitments that have been made around the, around the world and at the different brand and product levels. In a, another uh, i guess issue that many consumer facing companies are doing um or facing by, based on being leaders in the space and getting out early with some of the targets is uh they had to realign uh, as new standards come out and the, the urgency with which we, we need to act um, increases based on, on inaction. So the science-based target initiative, those that were on board early now need to re-up their, their targets to be realigned with a trajectory to keep um, global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Uh, so that's another activity that, that's being undertaken. And at the same time, the, these companies are trying to figure out how to translate from Voluntary um, reporting on this to reporting in in SEC filings. So it's an it's an it's an opportunity right now to think about those different types of commitments and to be very transparent in your recording reporting about what you mean by each each one. Um, carbon neutral operations. What specifically does that mean? Science based target. Is it in adherence with certain standards, or have you you know applied a science based approach, but not necessarily gotten that verification? So. Definitely an activity to behind the scenes to get that undertaken, and then when we think about challenges to, regardless of whether it's a science-based target, a net-zero target, carbon-neutral target, any kind of ambitious greenhouse gas reductions target, um, they're not easy. Uh, so uh, challenges that consumer-facing companies are looking at include. That that inventory. Back to some of what John talked about earlier. It's it's not easy, and it's been done over time with with technology that doesn't necessarily make it easy to react when the footprint of the company changes. So if if you're retail or hospitality and have lots of store openings and closings, that's something to to deal with. Very large consumer products companies that actually have manufacturing facilities all over the world need to think again, you know, it's all of these changes introduce the opportunity for error um, and, and omission. So it's the it's really just something to think about. Even though you think you get that baseline nailed when you set the target, often when we're working with clients around um, their roadmaps to achieve targets, the the often one of the things we're finding is, is some opportunities for improvement with their data collection and measurement, even in that initial baseline. Um, so, so that's definitely it. I mentioned the many, many locations be, being an issue, and that, that also brings into um, challenges associated with understanding the decarbonization rates of the overall grid in different countries and different geographies uh, at different times. You will make assumptions when you're setting an ambitious carbon reduction target that won't hold, hold true. And that's something that you've got to monitor um, as you go forward. So, how do you stay on top of those assumptions you made about overall grid decarbonization um, and many other assumptions on uh, fleet electrification, for example? How do you stay on top of those as time goes on in these multi-decade journeys that that Casey mentioned?
2: Casey, I just want to reiterate because also, you know, Julie, as you mentioned, if you think about setting a target in any other facet of business you're probably measuring that target or looking at progress against that target weekly, monthly, quarterly, right? So if you don't have you know the processes in place to make sure you're getting apples to apples across the whole boundary, because if you just pull a different emissions factor, you can have material differences in the amount of greenhouse gas emissions calculated. So if you're doing that certain facilities or business units or whatever, it, it can make a drastic change and you may never achieve that target or you could falsely achieve that target. So getting those apples to apples for one year and then year to year information consistently, but then also putting in some sort of automation. Cause if you are really driving towards certain targets, hopefully they're based and linked to operational achievements or goals anyhow. But if you wait till after year end, you see how close you are and you kind of cross your fingers. What's the sense of having a target? If you only get to know how much, how well you're doing against the target and you only get to make decisions once every 12 months.
0: Yeah, an issue that I think is going to be especially important as some of these targets get folded into compensation programs and, and bonus programs, uh, you, can, you can only manage what you can measure. And being able to measure it on a continuous basis is uh, you know, a, a pretty significant evolution from where most companies are at now. So um, maybe I'll just finish with a final word that all this sounds um, uh, very ambitious and there is an awful lot to do. And, and frankly, it can sound a little bit overwhelming. Uh, but but as perspective, as, as you all can see, um, uh, you know, by the gray in my beard, um, I can remember, I, I don't quite remember when people were using manual ledgers, you know, pen and ink in, in ledger books. But I certainly remember card readers and mainframe computers And many of the challenges we're talking about um, in terms of environmental reporting were faced 30 years ago, 40 years ago by financial reporting. And the world evolved and technology evolved and and ERP systems came in. Now there's cloud based systems and and the ability to dive into this data at an incredible level of minutiae on a on a hour by hour basis um, across the globe is incredible the same is going to happen for this non-financial data. It's just going to take a little bit of time. It's going to take some investment. It's going to take some thoughtful design and architecture of these systems. But it's not an unsolvable problem. It It is a problem that we're in the early stages of solving. And I think it's exciting to be you know, engaging with our clients to see how they're thinking about it, and I, I know the tremendously valuable work you're both doing with many of our clients in this area. Uh, so thank you for taking a break from those client engagements to to chat with us today, and uh, uh, look forward to to re engaging with you all in the future as we as we see how uh, our clients uh, make it down this path.
3: Thank
2: you. Thank you, Casey. Thanks, Julie.
3: That's our
1: show for today. We'll have more of these industry specific episodes for you in the coming weeks and tune in tomorrow for another broad ESG topic. This week focusing on the proposals from the ISSB. You don't want to miss that one as it's our last Thursday episode for this month. We'll be taking a hiatus for the rest of August to prepare for more great episodes this fall. That said, you'll still find us on Tuesday with our toolkit episode in August focusing on stock compensation. So that you never miss any of our audio content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast Series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in.
0: This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved.